So Jason. Yes, Dave. A grasshopper walks into a bar. The bartender says, hey, we have a drink named after you. Huh. The grasshopper says, you have a drink named Jeff? <laughs> Musician Mindset is a conversation series that extracts the performance and preparation thought process from world-class musicians, leaving you with wisdom and exercises to level up your musical journey. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Dave Hooper. We've got enough people just on that. <laughs> Next. Joining us today is Dave Hooper. Dave started as the voice of the Little Green Sprout from the Jolly Green Giant commercials. Is that true? Little known fact. Wow, yes, amazing. that is true. Dave attended North Texas State University. He also studied with Peter Erskine, Greg Bissonette, Steve Houghton, Joe Percaro, David Garibaldi, Tom Breckline, and spent many hours jamming in his garage with roommate Gary Novak. I've heard of that guy. Mm-hmm. At age 17, Dave began his studio drumming career, playing on nearly a thousand TV jingles. Dave most recently played on the soundtrack for the Netflix series Jessica Jones and Showtime's Homeland. Some of his career highlights have been working with Sheila E., Tony Braxton, Larry Graham, Herbie Hancock, Cheryl Crow, David Sanborn, Marcus Miller, George Duke, Lee Rittenauer, Diane Warren, Earl Klug, Smokey Robinson, The Rippingtons, David Byrne, Ray Parker Jr., Dave Koz, Joe Sample, Manhattan Transfer, Shaka Khan, and James Ingram. Dave also worked on the TV show Glee as a technical consultant. He was recruited by Microsoft and worked there as a web developer for two years and was the artist relations manager at Behringer for two years and currently does freelance web development for Facebook and is the creator of a pretty cool website called PossibleChops.com. Yes, sir. Welcome, Dave Hooper. Thanks for being here, man. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Yes, and I'm sure we'll be talking about possible chops. Yeah, a little uh, bit. <laughs> a, a little bit, as uh, those of you who can't see, Mr. Johnson's wearing the T-shirt <laughs> that says PossibleChops.com. That's right. So let's just start the plugs right away. <laughs> That's right. And before we get into it, we have a studio audience member with us. Yes, Harrison, That's you here. made it. Woo-hoo! Our first live studio <laughs> audience member. Quality, not quantity. <laughs> That's right. That's right. All right, very good. Uh, well, thank you for being here. We appreciate you. And um, just talking before the show, we you know the the circle of friends continues and we all know each other and we had a, a hangout before we even started <laughs> uh, recording right. here. Everybody knows everybody. Uh, so take us back. You have a, a crazy uh, resume, which is awesome. Yeah, it's a little crazy. Um, yeah. Let's start at the beginning. How did you get into music? And then to you, what was your first performance? What was that like? And we'll kind of go from there. Okay. Well, so I was sort of born into it. My father was a jingle writer in Chicago. That's kind of where it all started. Um, and he was doing everything, and so I would go to work with my dad and press my face against the glass and watch all the musicians in there. And then there was a need for a kid's voice on various commercials, and so being the composer's son <laughs> and nepotism being uh, so friendly to me, I got the call, and um, yeah, uh, I did a, quite a few jingles just as a kid's voice. It wasn't that I was that good of a singer, but, you know, I fit the bills before my voice changed, obviously. Um, but yeah, and uh, most of the time in those Jolly Green Giant commercials, you know, it was ho, 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 Green Giant. And so the joke goes, those three hoes paid my way through college. Yeah, but um, yeah, so I kind of, I grew up with it. My dad being a composer, he had a big band. He's a Grammy nominated big band composer. And so um, it was kind of hard not to, 
get into the industry just because I think uh, as a kid, you know, that is also exciting, you know, to go to the recording studio and, and um, you know, my dad was really at home leading a big group of musicians in a studio. So then my voice changed and I couldn't sing. So I thought, well, you know, my dad was pianist. So um, he got me a drum set and he and I used to jam. We would just play his Fender Rhodes and on my drum set. And he was a big proponent of uh, uh, nurturing like your ears and listening to phrases. And so he would play in these little four and eight bar phrases and then he'd repeat them again. It became kind of a game, like a challenge to remember the little figure that I did at the end of that phrase and then he'd do it again and you know the reward was getting a smile from dad you know that kind of thing so mm-hmm. it that kind of got me in early in it and it gave me you know a good insider's look into the music industry though I will say I do have vivid memories of all the musicians my dad hiring advising me not to get into the music industry mm-hmm. and you know when you're a little kid you're like what are you talking about you know this is all so fun and I think you know now I'm probably their age now, you know, I think it's the, the industry, the business part that they were speaking to more than the fun of playing. But um, yeah, it was it was a really cool way to get started. And my dad wanted to use me uh, as a drummer in his sessions far too soon, far before I thought I was ready. But uh, it was good. And every once in a while, there'd be a, a recording session that he'd get me into. So I'd go and do that. And uh, yeah, so, and then I was trying to study with all my heroes, everybody I could in L.A. I, we were uh, ultimately moved to L.A., and then uh, uh, I was studying. I was just calling everybody up. Can I, can I come over and sit with you for an hour? And, and uh, some were great. Some were just kind of fun hangs, you know. And then I went to North Texas, and that was a good uh, jazz school. And uh, learned to read music there and play a lot of jazz there. And then uh, came back to L.A. and started started working dang all right so, i know <laughs> just a lot of questions run through my head i want to yeah. start with with all that experience when you were young mm-hmm. what were some of the things you that really stuck out for you the lessons that you learned that you you used in your pro career well <clears throat> it seemed um a foregone conclusion that you would learn to read music um because everybody i was exposed to was in the studio reading music it didn't seem like an option which is interesting now because I see a lot of young musicians now and there's a debate, should I learn to read, shouldn't I learn to read, or does reading interfere with the creative process or whatever the excuse is for not doing it, but um, I just figured you had to do it. So I think watching those guys and how uh, amazing they were at joking around, joking around, okay, let's do a take, and they count it off and just play perfectly and effortlessly. So it seemed like... I didn't see it any other way. I feel like my exposure to music was only on that level, the guys that were the studio calls. Mm -hmm. And they were all amazing. And you thought that's what was normal, that's where the bar was set. Yeah, Yeah, I didn't didn't realize that you could do it less than that, if that makes sense. You shouldn't. I I agree. (laughs) I, I think that debate about learning to read music is kind of funny because if you think of music as a language, which I like to think of that, we're all having a conversation when we're playing music, and part of learning a language is learning to read a language. We all read English. It's not a hindrance to our ability to interact. Yeah. I think if you're going to learn to read music, really learn it. So it's not. It's a. a you don't even think about it. It's just oh, there's a music, and mm-hmm. you just do it. Yeah, you don't come across a 
well-spoken English speaker who can't read English. That's yes. Right. I dig it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, <clears throat> different direction on that. Um, a lot of the guys saying don't get into the music industry. Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, how, I mean, how did you how did you take that in? And, and now, you know, we're being in the industry for so long now, yeah. reflecting back on that. How are you able to sustain a career? You know, with, with them telling you to, to not do it, and now you're like, well, I'm successful at it now. Yeah. Well, certainly the, the industry is not easy to navigate your way through, and I, I don't see that um, scale is going up or what music, musicians are making is more now than it was when I started, and there's more competition now. So I would say, in general, it's a, it's a really tough endeavor. So the key to it, I think, is to hold on to the the genesis of it, the, the reason you started in the first place. I had no idea what the music w industry was. I just wanted to play drums. So I think uh, <clears throat> I love playing drums. That's primary. If, if you still love it, you know, you can take a job that doesn't pay well. But if you love it, you know, you, you have to take that as the victory and the takeaway. Um, I think monetizing yourself as a musician is the... Uh, that's the big that's the biggie now you know trying to make money doing this you know try to sell your product which is your ability and whatever you put out there as a musician but it, it is hard I think I understand what those guys were saying uh, don't get into music I think it might have been more accurate to say don't get into the music business mm -hmm. you know um, but I don't know when you want to do it at a really high level the idea of just being a weekend warrior kind of doesn't really go with that uh, I, maybe it could, but I don't think that ever occurred to us, the musicians who do it. Would you say though that that the your authenticity to just the love of playing drums and playing music that's really the the fuel that's <clears throat> continued to burn? The whole yeah, time? I think it 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 has to. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, I I don't know psychologically that you can uh, let that go because in the end you end up with no other skills because music is such a all-encompassing focused endeavor it's really hard to do things says the guy who's also a web <laughs> developer but I um, you know I think it really is a, a, an immersive experience it's something you really have to dive into really deep and spend a lot of time doing it to do it at a high level um, but yeah I don't know that's why I see you know most of the musicians I know do multiple things they teach they you know I don't know they well, I remember O'Teal Burbridge said in a video I saw a long time ago, he said, there's only one way you should do this for a living, and that's if you have to. <laughs> not And not meaning have to as in you can't do anything else, meaning have to as in it's like a calling on your yeah, life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think most people feel that way. Yeah. Like I couldn't imagine doing anything else. Yeah. I just think it's what I'm on the planet to do, yeah. and I have to do it. And, and maybe I could tell you, too, my experience of working at Microsoft um, was a total opposite, a total shift. You know, it's a very corporate environment, very process-oriented place, really very methodic in the way they go about things. And, uh, you know, I was working on a team. I think I might have been the only American guy on the team. So it was this wonderful international collection of really smart people, crazy smart. And I can remember being in meetings and I'd crack a joke. And it wasn't about whether the joke was funny or not. Everybody was just shocked that I told a joke. And I, I, my takeaway was like, how, you know, like musicians are just arrested development 
you know, want to be comedians. Like we're, right. That's all we want to do is crack each other up. <laughs> right. The start of the show started right. with it. Like, <laughs> that's what we want to do. And you're in this very serious environment with, and, you know, I don't know that they even got the joke or we didn't even get to the part whether whether it was clever or funny or not. It was just such a different environment. My point being, um, it's a it's a culture. And I would say, you know, most software companies uh, pride themselves on the culture that they create for their employees. You always hear the stories about Google and all these places where, you know, and and now that I'm working at Facebook, the campus is ridiculous. I mean, there's it's such an awesome place up there. And there's free food and there's a bike shop and an arcade and a music room where there's drums and stuff like that's like they want to make it fun so that you never go home so all you do is work there so that's one kind of culture but I would say the musicians culture is uh, uh, creative and funny and fun and that's what we're all looking to do there and I'm much more uh, at home doing that possibly because I grew up in the family of you know my family was music oriented my brother played bass um, so we kind of you know, there was that is I'm much more at home there, but I think, uh, you know, you got to pick, you got to pick the culture you want to be in and thrive in it and then accept it for what it is. If you, if you're rich, you're lucky, uh, but don't expect it cause you're just going to be frustrated. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, it's like, did you hear about the jazz musician that won $2 million in the lottery? <laughs> he goes, what, what are you going to do now that you won all this money? He goes, just going to keep playing gigs till the money runs out. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It's no, but so to, true. to what you were saying though, like, you hear people say all the time, if you're doing a gig and you're not having fun anymore on the gig, that you shouldn't do the gig anymore. Yeah. Which I agree with, but it's an interesting, like c- comparing it to your like Microsoft story, it's a weird way to look at your like quote unquote job. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mo- like most people who have a non-creative job, if you were to say, well, if your job isn't fun, you shouldn't do it. They'd be like... What do you mean? Like, it's a job. It's not supposed to be fun. Yeah. You know, yeah, for yeah. music, you yeah. don't really think of it like that. You don't think of it even, I don't think of it as a job. Uh-uh. I mean, not in that sense. Right. You know? Right, right. Well, and we're kind of accustomed to having fun, so it doesn't right. actually feel like a job. Right. The harder parts are the logistics around the job, the travel and the, yeah. you know, the endless rehearsals and stuff. Sometimes that can be the, the downside, sort of, but uh, yeah, it's, I agree. I agree with that 100%. Mm-hmm. I, I will say it was really interesting because I, was fortunate enough to make plenty of money at Microsoft, and so music became because I wanted to. And I, uh, I, I realized we all have the opinions we can afford. You know, like you're, sometimes you're on a gig, it's not going so great, or the people on it aren't that fun. But you know, you want to just be uh, cool and okay. This is good. You know, you know, maybe it'll end and you'll go on. Mm-hmm. You know, I found when you didn't really need the money, it was an interesting. Uh, a phone call to answer, you know, right. when somebody you traditionally didn't have that much fun working with calls and asks you to work again, and you realize, well, I don't need it, my, I got all my bills covered. Mm-hmm. And so you could say no. You would never say no because for the real reasons, of course. Right. <laughs> I don't really want to. But yeah, I mean, it's, it is interesting the, the stuff we have to deal with, especially as freelancers, because we're not making the calls, we're not setting up the music, and the music is rarely in your control mm-hmm. that's a you know you gotta conform and adjust well it's like we were talking about the other day um on the show here sometimes i i look at gigs and i think if i did win 20 million dollars which gigs would i keep and which ones would i not keep and that's yeah. kind of what you're saying yeah that you pretty much were actually in that 
I was in position, position to do that and make that decision. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting, but it was definitely it, it sort of came at a price, so to speak. Yeah. You know, it yeah. was um, it wasn't as fun. It, was, it really wasn't my thing. And then the Behringer gig was, to my mind, one of the perfect mixes because I had just gotten off the road with Lee Rittenauer and um, Uli Behringer was a Lee Rittenauer fanatic. That was one of his heroes. So it was kind of an easy gig to get, and uh, um, you know, the, the process was funny because I actually had a handler at Microsoft, and she was sort of saying, oh, I heard about this music company. I don't know if you've ever heard of them, you know, but they're looking for an artist relations manager and they've never had one before, I guess. Hmm. And uh, Behringer didn't have a great reputation at the time. I think they were known just to be the inexpensive brand. Right. They were good stuff, you know. And so I was kind of excited to get in there and try to bring in some uh, reputable players, some guys, mostly my friends and, and famous people that I could get to to mm -hmm. bring in and try to get them to stand behind the the product and for a while we were working on a signature amp for Rittenhour and and uh, uh, we did a big Nam party uh, when I was there and had uh, had some cool guys there I was working with the Foo Fighters a little bit and that, I guess that was the funny story which was uh, in the end Uli didn't really know pop music or anything other than Lee Rittenhour and Manhattan Transfer and he was sort of like in that era, yeah. which is fine. And I, I was starting to work a little bit with the Foo Fighters and sending some gear to their studio. And I went to him so excited to say, hey, we're starting to work with Foo Fighters. I'm trying to ultimately lead to, and he says to me, that's great, Dave. Now, who are the Foo Fighters? Mm -hmm. <laughs> I was like, oh, man. <laughs> you know, this is an uphill yeah. battle. I, and <laughs> and, and I, in talking to all of the artist relations managers that I deal with with my endorsements, they say a lot of the same things. It's hard for the businessmen who want to see a direct correlation. Now you're sending this amount of free gear to that guy I've never heard of. Are my sales going to go up by you doing that? And it's hard to you tie can't those really make together. A direct correlation to that necessarily. It, no, yeah. and that's the that's the thing. I mean, you need the big names. Otherwise, if nobody uses your gear, no matter how good it is, most players are going to go with. Well, my hero uses this. I think I'm safe. Yeah. I'll just pick a Fender guitar. You know, like that's kind of a no-brainer where, anyway, there was a lot of interesting uh, experiences there for sure. Yeah. Seeing the music industry from the other side of the desk. Definitely. I, worked, I did a stint at Alesis. Did you? Um, they came out with a, a prototype guitar that I went and repped around the country. Yeah. And to see, yeah, the, the product side of it, Yeah. it was so bizarre. Yeah. You know, you're like, oh, I'm playing, but like, this is a corporate gig. I yeah. What is going on here? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so a couple questions on that is like, did that experience in any way uh, change how you played music or how you viewed uh, your professional music career? I think it, it changed my perspective on what it means to have an endorsement. As far as playing, I started to realize that um, a lot of the decisions have to do with um, your visibility, your fame, your, you know, your name. You know, you're, it's always to your benefit to get your name out there and for people to know who you are. Uh, from the business st standpoint, if you have no followers on social media, now that's the big thing, but then it was much more about record sales and playing live and how many people you're in front of, that kind of thing. Um, but no, I'm not sure it really had much to do with my playing, um, maybe only in contrast in that I realized what I really loved, which was playing. Mm -hmm. um, the business I can do, and it's... Um, it was interesting, but it was dry, and it and it didn't have that 
um, that moment. Not that music has that moment at the end of the gig where you're popping champagne and like spraying it on each other, but it is sort of, uh, it is definitely a, a more fun, visceral uh, experience for sure, where I think, you know, business is much more bottom line and what? black and white. The first thing you said is that it changed your opinion of what it means to have an endorsement. Mm -hmm. Like, what is that? How so? Well, um, I realized being uh, bombarded with guys who just wanted free gear. That's really, I, it was, it got really easy to see guys for what they were after. You know, they just mm -hmm. wanted to, they were almost asking, how much free gear can you give me because I'm me? And then, um, you know. Which in reality, m m people listening may not realize most endorsements don't, unless you're the top dog, doesn't even involve free gear, yeah. period. Yeah. It involves whatever your percentage is off of the, you, you know, yeah. you get an artist deal. You get an artist deal. Which is deal. a good deal, but yeah. not I, a lot of guys I, are getting free stuff. I might actually argue that as well, because I would say that uh, I realized how little it costs to make gear. Oh, and yeah. for them to mm -hmm. give you the honor of buying the gear at their price, they're really investing nothing in you. Mm -hmm. They're just letting you take the product that they'll just make more of and sell. It's not the like they're losing center. money. Yeah. I, I think for a company to really stand behind you, it, it's, it probably means more to a player if they really are thrown in with you. It's like, okay, this $1,000 item we sell costs us $200 to make. You know, mm -hmm. if any anything less than two hundred dollars is the part where we're all working together. Mm -hmm. I don't know, man. I I think that's arguable, but I mean, I realize it is what it is. And there's so many musicians, and you look at the rosters now; yeah. they're huge. They can't huge. possibly give free gear to everybody. They yeah. wouldn't. You know, margins are low now. Yeah. Can we stay on this thread for a second? I think the, sure. the audience would get some value out of this. Like, how would you recommend a, an emerging artist? go about trying to get an endorsement deal and what should they want to get out of it? Yeah. Well, I, it's interesting. So if you're, if you're new, if you're up and coming, um, there would be hope that the artist relations manager would recognize talent and would want to have you on their roster surely because you're talented. And I've seen that happen before. People really were like, wow, you're gonna, you're going places, kid. You know, it's one of those things. Um, I think, uh, trying to understand the nature of the business that the the company wants visibility they want their product in front of people they want it demoed they want it displayed and it's all its glory you know like this is what you can do with my product and if you're in front of a lot of people with that product and you're active on social media those kinds of things are important now so you'll do yourself a favor to try to uh, build your is it your your audience build your visibility in in some way so that they'll they'll do it and uh, maybe don't ask for the moon you know I mean realize like if you genuinely love the product I gotta believe in artist relations manager that will resonate with them like I really like your product I use it anyway mm -hmm. you know I can show you I've been you know yeah um, not just a, oh and then there's also that maybe I could say I like that you know th th I think right. the art the, the companies want to know you're a genuine advocate because we all know guys who just jump around from company to company yeah. and yeah. what does that mean? You know, that's not, you're not really advocating for them. So I don't know if I'm answering your question very no, well, no, but it, I, I do think if you really genuinely like the product, you know, just for a young person, ask to get, uh, ask to get on board, even at, at the lowest possible level. 
and say, I'd like to show you some progress. Here's where I'm at now. And I, I want to say, I think I can get to here in six months and I'm going to check back in with you and I'm going to show you this is what I've done. This yeah. is all the stuff that I've been doing to, to do that. And maybe kind of showing that you're interested in a genuine relationship with a company rather yeah. than just give me free stuff. Yeah. And, and then the free stuff will come eventually. You know, yeah. I think that's, that's the way it should, it should go. You don't yeah. imagine Tiger Woods pays for his golf clubs, right? Right. So. <laughs> well, the, the scenario you were describing was totally my story with Aquarian. Yeah. Because I've been with them for probably, man, 15 years or something. Yeah. Through Jack Mayer and Mayer Brothers hooked me up with them. And uh, Roy Burns was the head of the company, and I met him, and I met Chris Brady, the artist rep. And they basically flat out said the philosophy of our company is we want to be supporting the guys who are the boots on the ground and working guys and playing gigs and yeah. you know dedicated to excellence in their field as opposed to they have a certain amount of like the guys that are in the popular band of the month or whatever they have those guys too but i think aquarian more than just about any company really devotes themselves to like the artistry of it yeah and i um you know i'm eternally grateful to them that way back then it's like you were saying Hey kid, we see something in you. We think you know you'll yeah. do something eventually. So yeah, I mean I love that, and I love working with people like that. Yeah, it's, it's mutual awesome. loyalty. I yeah, would say exactly. you're loyal to the brand, and for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's cool. Well, let's take it back to you, you, your playing, uh -huh. um, and your story. So, studio or live? Which do you prefer? <laughs> well, um, I feel like it started more in the studio, I guess. But I think the live thing, there's kind of no substitute for playing in front of. A lot of people and I I probably watched thousands of live concerts and I've been to many shows and thought God, I want to be that guy you know in front of an ocean of people that kind mm. of thing so that's still uh, still a rush for sure I think it's the studio thing is so much less um, uh, exciting because it's so micro you know you're under the microscope and everything is supposed to be so perfect and uh, it's more contained where I think you can really stretch out live and mm -hmm. live is where it's at I think how do you prepare for a live gig well um, so lately with gigs um, I get called from somebody I've never worked for um, and they'll send me the music they want to play I always ask for a live performance if they have it so that I can learn the live because the record doesn't always indicate what they want to do or what they have been doing live um, most everybody I work with has been sending charts on the rare occasion there isn't that I'll just sketch out the form It's a little bit easier for drums because I think you know drum reading drum music is so interpretive it's not so literal you know you're given forms many times you're reading a rhythm chart or you're reading the guitar chart you know and you can kind of get a sense of you start to learn okay well if the guitar player is doing that this is what I've done typically but so you go through those charts you listen to the live you make your cheat sheet or your, your notes on that and then uh, I like to show up ready to play. I don't really look at rehearsals as rehearsals. I look at them as run-throughs. You know? Definitely. Yep. I, yeah. I, I think the days of getting called for rehearsal and then them handing out the music at rehearsal are long no gone. No way. Oh, man, there's no nothing but more It used to be that way. Yeah. No way. Yeah, and, and, you do, and now that's, the, that's common now. So if you're the one guy that didn't do that, it's disrespectful to the guys exactly. who did. Yeah. Oh yep. yeah, exactly. Like, man, I'm ready to do the show, and you're still trying to figure out what key we're in. Like, this is not. This is going to take a long time, and you know, now it's more efficient. 
No, I, I think, think that's a, that's a mutual shared yep. pet peeve that we oh, all yeah. have. Is yes. just be prepared, please. I mean, how many guests have we had on? Yeah. <laughs> like they all stress the same that's thing. That's a recurring just theme. Respect sure. the other musicians that are putting in the time ahead yeah. of time. So just like you say, you get there and it's it's not a rehearsal. It's it's a run through. It's let's, a run through. Let's, let's do it. Yeah, I've There's heard a, it. I know what the guy did before me. I have some questions, maybe. Oh, yeah. Maybe that's the other thing too. Don't be afraid to ask questions even before you start playing. Yeah. I've gone into rehearsal and I've I have question marks on my chart. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know, is this a part or is this a mistake? Is this on purpose? Are we straying from, you know, those kinds right. of things. I think I think a band leader appreciates that too. I have a bass player friend who says, um, practicing at home is to learn your parts and rehearsal is for you to learn everyone else's parts. Yeah, interesting. I think that's a good way to look at it. Yeah. You should show up to rehearsal being so solid on your own stuff that now you're able to hear what's going on around you. Focus yeah, on yeah. That. Because otherwise you're just so hyper-focused on your own part. Exactly. exactly. That's what I was just going to say. It's like yeah. the, the point of the run-through should be to vibe and gel with the band, yeah. right? To create that atmosphere. Yeah. That not the to struggle is through to... the notes. Yeah, because yeah. then you're, you're all up here and not enough here. Absolutely. And yeah, that's cool that you said that. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that goes to the, 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 your role or the, your input in the band. I mean, uh, you, if you zoom out and, and try to figure out what is your ultimate goal here, say you got called for a gig and it's your first time there what is the dream what's the end dream scenario that the guy says you're my guy you know you're this is incredible i i never you were prepared you were, you know all the things right. you know you're prepared you're on time you listen to my music and you seem to like it <laughs> you know like it's all those things you know yeah. and so then just reverse it uh figure that out right uh, deconstruct that if you show up not having listened to the music, you can't have that expect- expectation. It's you've blown it already. Mm-hmm. You haven't even started playing. Mm-hmm. So, like, go into the rehearsal with the desired outcome in mind and work backwards of how work to backwards. achieve that outcome. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. What are the what? Yeah. What and then try and that involves you putting yourself in the shoes of the, yep. the band leader. Yep. What does he want? And if you've never led a band, you really need to sit down and think about it yep. it's easy for you guys have led mm-hmm. you know what it's like when somebody shows up late yep. it's ter- it's stressful because your your name's on the marquee you're at the the club the theater whatever and it's like oh my and you've got enough stress, stress here. going on that you don't it's, yep. it's so unnecessary do? yeah yeah Re- and yeah it's experience yep. it's la and it's traffic that's as it yeah. always leave 20 has minutes been. Early, you know, <laughs> like leave twenty minutes early. Goodness, yeah. I, I just don't understand that philosophy that people carry. Yeah. And, I, and I feel like those things are so easy, and I don't know. Sometimes I run across guys who seem to be too cool to do those yeah. things. Yep. And I that's don't. That's a know. big thing, actually. That's a very big thing. Yeah. Yeah. I don't really understand. To not that. show up on time. No, guys. There is a certain faction of people, at least in LA, that think that um, because of their stature or their resume or whatever that they don't have to put in the same work that they don't have to try that um i don't have to check out the music ahead of time i'm great i'll show up and it'll be great no matter what i do or yeah totally or um you know i'm like it's kind of like asserting yourself as the alpha dog of the situation like i can show up a half hour late let these guys be ready for me so that when i get there we can start it sounds crazy but believe me (laughs) Yeah. There are people like that. If you ever want to get knocked off the pedestal, that's the quickest way yeah. to do it. Yeah. yeah. I don't. My goodness. Yep. Do you think being, uh, growing up in the studio and being around professional musicians, uh, that ingrained this philosophy in you? 
Yeah, I think that the anything other than that seemed anomalous. It seemed like what's happening here? I, I like I it never crossed my mind that you wouldn't show up. Yeah, like you put your you know you're expected to put your shoes on, but like all these yeah. things are just part of the. Yeah. I'm here. I'm, yeah. I, oh, that's how I think. I didn't bring I mean, my drums. Yeah. What am I? You know, like I, no, no, no. You, yeah. <laughs> It all goes in those columns. <laughs> right. I do this, 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 you know, and but some people's list is much shorter. Right. And I don't know <laughs> right. it is, yeah. you know. Why if you want to make it, why are you handicapping yourself? I don't yeah. I don't really get it. Yeah. It's and it's hard to influence people to do the opposite. You know, yeah. if, if they're not doing it, it I mean you, to train that kind of habit is so crazy because there's only so much you can do yeah. outside of saying you, you don't get the gig. Yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah, right. they, they just got to go and do it. Um, anyhow, so a live show. Okay, well, you, mm-hmm. you get to a live show. What does your your hour before the show look like? Assuming yeah. your gear is already set up. Um, well, you know, I'm somebody who likes to over prepare. So I think what comes with being prepared is uh, an extra little boost of confidence that the show is going to go well. To me, and I and my wife will attest to it. I go through some uh, stress or anxiety before gigs, just prepping because, and and I and she's like, you always get it. And I'm like, yeah, I always get it because I always go through this. Like, I want to make sure I got this and this and this. So, an hour before, if I've done all that I usually do, it's a piece of cake, really. I mean, I I'll warm up, and. Um, if it's a new new gig, I might revisit some stuff. Maybe put the headphones on and just double check that I, you know, any second thoughts. But I'm a big proponent of uh, uh, killing nervousness with preparedness and confidence that yes. you're. This is this yes. is literally the conversation I had with Harrison this afternoon. Really? <laughs> of, of like we were talking oh, about no the, the <laughs> test out. I mean, I was, and mm-hmm. uh, you know, how do you how do you handle that kind of stress? Over prepare, yeah, right. Yep. It's it's the silent confidence. Yeah, you know, you walk in the event owning it because you know I've done everything that I can possibly do. Yeah, anything that happens at this point is not on me. It's not going to be you. you. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. and when you have that, I mean, just like, you I mean you're walking on water there. Yeah, you know, because it's it's, you've done everything that you can. Yeah, but well, I think it's important to stress to people the difference between what you might perceive as preparing for a gig and being prepared versus over preparing. Okay, because, so let's, let's talk about that. Like, well, and I 100% with you. When you said that, I feel the same way. I feel I over-prepare, but I feel um, that just like everything you said, I need to over-prepare so that I can have fun and not be worried about it. Right, right, because then the, the gig becomes just like the rehearsal, right? The rehearsal should be a run-through. The gig should be about entertaining, Yeah. right? Because at that point, if you're on stage, yes, of course, you're there for yourself to play music, right? But if you have people that are paying to see you, well, your job is now to be an entertainer, and yeah. you can't really be an entertainer. Entertainer, if you're trying to remember your parts, remember the music, you know, because that's that's just a different way of approaching it. So the over preparation leads to the ability to think about what, okay, how can I how can I do this a little bit better, or how can I like you know hit the light or a certain spot and just make people move, you know, yeah. and feel something and create a great experience. Absolutely, it's so refreshing to hear and, this again you know, and I, like, think, you got it. I think with the over preparing thing that you realize over time is that when you're in a live music situation you're going to have so many countless external factors that are detrimental to you to begin with 
Sure. Whether it's your monitor's not right, you can't see, you can't hear, you're, whatever, you know, so many things. Someone's vibing you, someone in the front row is there, you know, whatever. So there are already going to be so many things attacking you mentally that that's going to chip away at mm -hmm. your performance if mm -hmm. your performance isn't above 100% prepared. Because mm -hmm. then when that is knock, notching you down, you can still be at 100%. That's yeah. how I look at it. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. So it, uh, a lot, in a live situation, obviously, you know, you've, you've, we've, you've prepared. Mm -hmm. When something goes wrong, <laughs> which, as you just said, 101 things can go wrong. Yeah. Um, what, what is your strategy? Like, like, how do you play through the errors? Yeah. And wh what do you do? Well, it's a funny thing. I, I, there's a few things that play there, I would say. Uh, making a mistake is, is something you learn to recover from. And uh, I would say in a scenario where you're with friends and they already know that you can play, there's no question that I made that mistake because I couldn't accomplish that. It was genuinely just pilot error, like, I don't know, something. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, so you can laugh that off. Those are, those are kind of the easy ones. If you're the new guy, it's, uh, it's, it's harder to make a, a mistake. If it's a glaring one, it's... Uh, you know, but I think you do yourself a favor to not overly beat yourself up on stage. You can do it plenty later and learn from it and try never to do that again. But uh, um, I think there's something to be said about having the confidence in your own playing that even if you make a mistake, the band might turn and look at you. That's the moment that they decide that guy's, you know, no longer the guy that we want or, you know, that's one, uh, I don't know how to say it. Like, he's one of us, like of course, we all make mistakes and he's laughing about it. It's not because he wasn't prepared, you know, like the, there's this, I don't know, this, this is a, kind of a hard one to describe, but I, I think it's, um, there's a lot of things that go through my head. Um, I can remember when I was a kid playing ice hockey, I remember we're doing this drill and I fell. I laid on my back like sliding along the ice and I had started laughing sort of in, in an embarrassed way. And the coach skated right over and got my face. And he's like, Hooper, get up. He was yelling at me. And it's like the getting up right away is the better, the better thing to do after a mistake. Just get up and, and move on. You know, don't mm -hmm. wallow in it. Don't let it ruin the rest of the song or the gig. Or don't, don't let it get in your head. Because isn't that all of our goals is to analyze everything as best we could so that when we get on stage we're not analyzing anything we're just in the music you know mm -hmm. but and another thing that you learn with experience is that when you do make a mistake everybody else be it the rest of the band or the audience has forgotten about it yeah. long way sooner you know you're still dwelling on it they probably forgot about it 10 seconds later yeah yeah you know and you're still thinking about it for three hours yeah and it might have been just a mistake that only musicians picked up on anyway right the audience might not have even and every mistake that happens, depending on the type of mistake, you take that as a learning opportunity. The first time I showed up at a gig and it was dark and I couldn't see my music, every gig the rest of my life after that, there's a stand light in my car. Yeah. Whatever, you know, that's a dumb example, but like yeah. every mistake you can learn from. You know, they, like they say, failure is a small price to pay for wisdom. Mm -hmm. yeah. And if you look at a failure or a mistake as uh, that you won't let that happen again, then you're better off for it. I think you can also... Uh do something clever. I remember seeing Stuart Copeland in a, in a clinic and he said, if you make a mistake, make it twice. They'll think you're creative. Yeah, exactly. And I was like, okay, well, that's another way to recover, you know, like try to just do the same mistake again. 
you know, then, out of it. Yeah. Or give the bass player a dirty look. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> that wasn't me. It wasn't me. It's funny. What was the biggest mistake that you had made uh, that lesson you learned from that? From like making a mistake on stage or just or just playing in general or yeah, whatever. You know, something that, that the audience would get value out of. Wow. Um, you know, um, I the things that come to mind are things like counting off the wrong tune or something or not having the set list in the right order or things like that, which are mortifying internally and then you just laughing on the outside and you just stop and I mean those are the glaring ones and I, I don't think that there's a real graceful way to other than just stopping and then starting the right tune I mean those are the moments where I'm cringing just because it wasn't even like it was just the wrong I don't know pilot areas it was pilot error yeah yeah but the lesson you took, you take out of those situations. Well, because we uh, all make mistakes. Right? Yeah, I mean, it, it's gonna happen. Cut, you know, make sure you give yourself a break when it happens. But just again, it goes back to being over prepared. Maybe, maybe I started double checking the set list. Maybe I, um, you know, th there might be some things where it's a ten songs in a set list, but you have like two of them, so memorized you don't need the chart, so you don't even have a chart for that. Now I put a placeholder chart in yep. there. Do you know what I mean? Just yep. like that's the song that's going to happen next. Yep. I'm not. There's or, nothing to or, read other than title, but I'm not skipping ahead yep. to the or next tacit song. sheets. Yeah, yeah, yep. exactly. Just again the preparedness, and then you know, and then how you handle it after the gig. You know, um, I think that depends on the leader. If he doesn't care, I think it's always good to go and own it. You know, don't. Don't ever just try to sweep it under the rug. Mm -hmm. I think band leaders, I imagine, appreciate if you say, listen, I'm really sorry. I don't, you know, that was a total random error. I apologize. And, you know, like, I think, you know, that whole... Humanizes it. Man. Yeah. yeah. There's no ego involved in that. Yeah. I think they got to appreciate it. You know, mm -hmm. don't so pretend it So Harrison's sitting here smiling and laughing as <laughs> through this story. And I know why. Because I did a gig last week where we had shows on Wednesday and Thursday. Mm-hmm. And a ton of music, like three-hour show both nights, and they were different sets, slightly, like 20% different from one night to the next. Yeah. Now, I have to program my iPad in order, uh -huh. and I have to program my Tempo app on my phone in order because I'm counting everything off. So <laughs> in it, this is the amount of anxiety I put myself through yeah. beforehand so that things like that hopefully don't happen. I've put my iPad in order, put my tempo app in order I'm holding the paper set list and I hand it to Harrison and I said Harrison I'm going to read to you yeah. the set list off of my iPad and you're going to double check it in on the paper yeah and I did that meticulously four times yeah. for those two shows for yeah. the act one and act two yeah for you're two nights OCD about it yeah. totally OCD about it yeah but because I'm not gonna let something like that happen yeah. I mean of course something can still happen but and I made a a blank template on Fourscore on the iPad where I can generate my own uh, tacit sheets now and yeah. insert it really quickly. Um, mean you know so that you don't skip ahead if one song's in your tempo app and one song's in your iPad. If those orders don't line up because there's a blank spot, yeah. if it's like a Roboto thing or whatever. Yeah, I'm like very paranoid <laughs> about that all the time. Yeah, and I will triple check set lists. Yeah, <laughs> and. Another side, funny side story on that gig. Um, someone else in the band <laughs> train wrecked a song because their music was out of order, and oh I counted something off, 
and it was it was wrong bad it was bad <laughs> so yeah. people reacted and recovered properly and yeah. things like the it was mainly about not throwing off the vocalist yeah of course so um <laughs> just goes to show man got to yeah. be diligent about that stuff yeah <laughs> well and i would say then you could always point to how a leader recovers from a mistake makes a big difference too you know if the leader gets visibly mad on stage right. I would say that's arguably unprofessional, you know, you can and that's laugh. Making, and yeah, that's making it worse. I don't think the audience, you know, they, uh, like you were saying about humanizing things, like I think an audience would like to see a, the big star on stage be human, you know, and some some leaders recover great, you know, like when they make a mistake or they, you know, I don't know. I, I think it's it's definitely a skill for everybody on the, sta- on the bandstand. Just be sure. real. Yeah. Yeah. It's just going to make the experience that much better. Absolutely. Uh, okay. Let's pivot and talk about possible chops. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Tell, tell us about it. And, and yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You, you've got, you've got Dave here repping the brand. That's right. <laughs> I'm so happy to have met Dave. So um, years ago, I found myself on YouTube watching great drummers and I was trying to figure out what they were doing and some of them would even try to explain it. And I would say most of them would fail to explain it because uh, for one reason or another, a lot of drummers are just better at playing. They, you know, the the skill of breaking down what you do and explaining it, I think, is a whole other teaching and playing are ball of wax. Worlds. Yeah. Um, so I, um, I was frustrated, and somebody who had gone to music school, I I thought this is crazy. Like that, there should be a way to break this down. And and I think in the drummer culture, you know, whenever we're to, together in the room, uh, playing with together with each other or whatever if somebody plays something that we want to know we'll have that opportunity to say well well, stop break that show me that Mm -hmm. and so um i was thinking well wouldn't it be great if there was a way to do that virtual way to do that essentially a virtual jam session online where i could get drummers to play these crazy things and i would never ask them to explain it i said just play it just you know i'll slow it down on video and we'll transcribe it and put the stickings in there and and do it in such small bites of bite-sized pieces so that you could actually grab the the one bar fill of something oh what's the expression i like uh, face melting it was <laughs> what there's no way i could figure that out in real time you know so um at the time i was uh, my roommate at the time gary novak he and i were talking about that and so uh, as sort of a proof of concept we just pointed the video camera at the drum set and would take turns practicing in little four bar phrases. And at the end of the fourth bar, would just try to play something really ridiculously difficult and complex, you know? And then I, me being the computer nerd, put my propeller hat on and then I slowed the music, you know, slowed it down and then uh, transcribed it. And uh, it was it was really cool. It was a, kind of a virtual way to pick up, uh, I think I like to use the language metaphor here that it's vocabulary for drumming you know where mm-hmm. um you know there's a lot of elements that go into playing every instrument and uh, starts with the rudiments or the basics you know the notes and then you start to play phrases and then you start to play songs and solos so possible chops is that vocabulary builder for drummers and mm-hmm. it's uh, an online resource for it and i met dave and thankfully and he sort of shared my passion for this and he's a wonderful transcriber and we hit it off uh, right away. So, and yeah, I was like, I need help doing these transcriptions. And So we met on the Cause Cruise in Australia. Dave was one of the drummers on the main stage shows. And um, I think we just randomly ended up having lunch together yeah. one of the days. And you were asking me 
what else I was up to. And I had mentioned that um, I'm working on a book project with Aubrey that I'm transcribing the new record. And Aubrey and I are going to collaboratively release that as like a PDF download and printed availability, you know, mm -hmm. that um, people can just learn note for note everything I played on the record and just as a cool kind of educational tool. My ears and immediately then, went like, what? You're transcribing? Right. Because it was like the last six months I've been telling my wife, like, if only I could find a drummer who like could transcribe the stuff because it's hard. It's, it's hard not stuff, just, yeah. It's not beginner stuff. This right. website's only the hardest stuff. And we even have some funny texts back and forth, like <laughs> debating the best way to transcribe really what is should be untranscribable. Yeah. It's un, yeah. It, it's in, it like five bend, notes squeezed five notes in the space of a dotted eight notes but over a bar yeah and yeah it's five five <laughs> notes within the space of a dotted eighth note yeah and you can't really it kind of like bends the space-time continuum you can't mm -hmm. really write it out yeah. so we came up with a way that we both agreed was the best way yeah. you know and it's fun <laughs> i love stuff like that so anyway um dave said well you know i'm looking for a transcriber and would you be interested and so I think I went right up to my room and I emailed you one of the songs yeah. that was already done from Aubrey's record. I sent the MP3 and the PDF of my transcription yeah. and and uh, we met up as soon as possible when we got back to LA and yeah. started banging and started stuff started out. Started jumping and, in. Yeah, started working on it. So it's been going for a couple months now and we're making good progress on it. Yeah, that looks yeah. good from what I saw that, yeah, that cool. you linked me. It looks real nice. Cool. Yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled because the progress is going, I mean, we're releasing a new lesson every day now. Yep. Like we've got new stuff, new drummers, we're filming, we just filmed yep. a new drummer last week. It's and how can people get involved? Is it a membership or? Yeah, so, it? well, basic membership is free. I mean, I think the idea was, I didn't really want there to be a barrier for drummers to get on there and see what it was all about. And um, there's a whole compu uh, community component in there mm -hmm. where um, sort of an internal social media system, you know, where you can upload your pictures of your kit and videos of yourself playing and promote Super your gigs cool. from in there. So it's like a little, an internet or a little internal um, drummer's site, you know, and a basic membership, you get to see, you know, um, a good portion of the, the lessons there. And then I think ultimately, if it's for you, you know, we're encouraging people to sign up for a pro membership, which is 10 bucks a month. And then you literally get the all access pass to all, uh, gosh, we're, we're pushing 200 lessons now. So. Yep. And it'll it'll continue to grow. And so. where can they find it? It's possiblechops.com. Okay. And is yeah. there any social uh, media links? Well, so uh, we're on Facebook. We're on uh, Instagram. It's all Possible Chops, you know. So it's e we're easy to find, you know, mm -hmm. in there. Search for Possible Chops, you know. Come check awesome. it out. Yeah, no, it looks good. I'm, I'm really interested in that, like, the community thing that you built on there. I'd oh, like to, to take a look at that for something I'm working on as well. Yeah. Talk later about it. But uh, yeah. anyway, so uh, gearing, uh, gearing down here. Let's go with some uh, two or three advice tips that you would give yeah. to drummers or musicians for, like starting off their professional career. Yeah. Um, let's see. I would say uh, being laid back is maybe one of the, the biggest things that I've seen, at least for myself, sort of being low maintenance, laid back. Maybe low maintenance is a better way of saying it. Um, you know, gigs are complex. There's a lot of moving parts and stuff, you know, and to be the guy that is the guy that no one has to worry about, you know, is is a really, really great thing, even from the beginning, you know, you, you don't have to be an expert on the instrument to be low maintenance, you know, if you, it goes to all those sure. things we were saying about being prepared. 
that kind of thing. And then I would say that uh, that empathy component, kind of the putting your yourself in the other person's shoes, you know, and trying to sort out everyone else's uh, situation, you know. I think that's um, something I know drummers focus on. I can't really speak to other instruments quite as much, but I would say the thing that we share is this sense of glue that we, and we function like the glue there, you know, where uh, everybody comes in having different influences and somehow it's, uh, the ideal is to make it this cohesive, smooth running, great feeling music machine, you know, and uh, that the only way you get there is with this heightened sense of empathy. And I'm, and maybe that's a little esoteric or weird, but I do think it has to do with the sorting out, okay, the, the guitarist you know he plays on top of the beat and the bass player plays behind the beat and i'm in the middle arbitrating and you know trying to pull everyone together in a comfortable way and at the end you know it's supposed to be good so that those would be two of the biggies i think the low maintenance and a heightened sense of empathy great i think and then uh, besides possible chops is if people want to find you learn more about you where else can they go well yeah lately primarily um, my focus has been on possible chops but um, my website you can go to is hooperdave.me but I I would say that um, uh, I'm trying to move life into my my possible chops world because I think it can uh, it's growing I think the social media component of it I think is really a plus it's a really strong place so I'd like to think of it as a a good place but I mean I'm fairly active on Facebook and Instagram also but yeah possible chops that's where we want to go yeah Dave you want to uh, close out with anything possiblechops.com <laughs> <laughs> slash plug 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 plug, plug. <laughs> plug it no it's good it's worth it I mean it's I mean you're doing a good thing and you know and you got a great vibe and it's been really cool to have you with us well thanks I appreciate it is better for it so uh, unless we got anything else to to add we're going to sign off well, thanks for having me I'm, yeah, I'm a here, fan man. of your podcast so it was really fun to be here so well we uh, thanks, it's man. been an honor and then yeah. possiblechops.com and then all the socials as well and then we'll catch you guys later thanks for listening to today's episode to sign up for possible chops Use the link in the show notes and use the coupon code PODCAST to receive one month of premium membership for free. to Musician Mindset Podcast with Dave Johnstone and Jason Land. You can contact the show through Facebook and Instagram at Musician Mindset Podcast. If you like what you heard, please leave a written review and a five-star rating on iTunes.